This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to Killer Queens, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Torella. And I'm your better, prettier, younger host, Tori. We're sisters who are obsessed with true crime and love gal palin with you about cases. You can expect the occasional curse word, lots of friends quotes, and all the 90s nostalgia. To get in on the conversation, check us out at KillerQueensPodcast.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at KillerQueensPodcast. And we're on YouTube at KillerQueens, a true crime podcast. Okay, y'all, grab your Capri Suns or your Surge and let's talk about some true crime. Hey guys. Hi guys. Hey guys. Well, welcome back to Killer Queens. Yeah. It's your true crime podcast with a healthy dose of nostalgia. Yes. Would you say? I would say so. Great. Sometimes there's more, sometimes there's less, but there's always a little bit trickled in, right? Definitely. Yes. And um, you'll hear some mispronunciations on purpose. We know it's definitely. <laughs> exactly. And implicitly, we know that's, well, no, that is implicitly, isn't it? Hmm. Just kidding. It's implicitly. I know. <laughs> Just You're really wanting to piss people off today. Yes, I am, apparently. But I do think we need to talk about the Patreon, no? I do think so as well. We do have some exciting stuff going on in the Patreon. Two bonus episodes a week for starters. Yeah. And any level that you get will get you ad-free for sure. Absolutely. And right now, if you go to killerqueens.link slash innocence, like innocence files on Netflix, you can get our first episode of that series that we're because we're covering it right now on the Patreon. You can get that first episode well free. And um, we also have some other special goodies in there to give you for free bonus episodes just for signing up. So definitely go check that out. Yeah. 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 Okay. So should we get on into today's case? Yes, we should. Okay. So we want to preface this by saying that the Menendez brothers case has been friggin' covered to the max. Like. It just has. Yes. Pretty much everybody's covered We're it. not the first. We won't be the last. Absolutely. But we did have people, you know, want our take on it. And we did do an episode with Coffee Convos where we discussed this case with them. But we thought it might be nice. And our some of our listeners asked for, like, you know, more of our take on it. So we thought, you know, we'd do an episode and kind of go a little bit more into how we feel about things. Because you know how it is. If you do an interview with somebody, they can't, you know, for time's sake, they don't keep everything. So we figure, you know, we'll have our own conversation about it too. Yeah. 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 All right. So just to kick us off, and I mean, you know, we're not going to do this like, oh, I didn't know the brothers did it. Like we all know the brothers did it. It's, mm-hmm. you know, we're not going to, we're not going to have any intrigue there. But the crime occurred on August 20th, 1989. So Jose and Mary Louise, she went by Kitty Menendez, were shot to death in their home in Beverly Hills. And this was in their, it looked kind of like a, it didn't look like a foyer. It was like off the foyer. Like you walk in, there's the big staircase, there's the foyer. And then I think like off kind of to the left is this room that had like glass doors. And they were in there watching TV, either a movie or TV, and they were laying on the couch and they were shot while they were there. So the brothers, Eric and Lyle. So at this point, Lyle is 21. Eric is 19. Mm -hmm. They called the police and they're like freaking out that their parents have been shot. and. 
you can hear the 911 call. It's easy to find, I'm sure. And there's like a hundred thousand shows and documentaries and stuff on it. So you can definitely hear the 911 call if you want to hear it. But it's Lyle calling and he's like, you know, my parents have been shot. And they're like, are they still there talking about the shooters? And he is like, yes. And they're like, oh, the shooter's still there. And he's like, no, my parents. And they're like, oh, okay. So they send the police over. The police get there. And initially they believe that the boys are victims and they're witnesses. You know, their parents have just been blown away by shotguns. So they're not treating them as possible suspects. They don't test them for gunshot residue. They don't search their vehicle. And if they had, they would have found the shotguns, right? Like Mm -hmm. they don't treat them as anything other than you poor boys have just witnessed your parents being murdered. Like Mm -hmm. there was no thought about that in the beginning. And there is a lot of speculation as to like that being the case because it was Beverly Hills, you know, and it kind of reminds me of Martha Moxley, how they literally would not look at anybody inside that neighborhood because it was unfathomable to them that a rich white kid could kill somebody like that. Mm -hmm. It had to have been somebody who'd come out from outside of the neighborhood. Right. Because nice white kids don't do that. Like, guys, it's a (laughs) homicide. You know it's a homicide. Do everything you're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, I mean, especially with the fucking shotguns in their car, like, well, right. I mean, it's like they were literally right under their noses and they just did not perform any kind of investigation as it pertained to the boys. So, Mm -hmm. and you know when they were right under their noses? When? The whole time. Mm -hmm. The whole time you were the whole time? The whole time? (laughs) Yes. The whole time it was there. I mean, that that would be literally like the definition of a smoking gun. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, here we are. So after the murders take place, initially the boys are not suspected and they end up getting an insurance payout of, I believe it was $400,000 initially. And they go shopping. Mm -hmm. They buy all kinds of stuff. Jeeps, cars, um, watches, Rolexes. A restaurant. (laughs) A restaurant. Their explanation for this is one of our uncles was talking to Lyle and he needed a suit for the memorial. And then he needed like in California and then he needed one for the one we were going to have in New Jersey. So he went shopping and, um, and they're like, oh, so you needed expensive Rolexes, $9,000 Rolexes to go with it. And he's like, well, I didn't need it. And they're like, so you wanted it. And he's like, yeah. Well, I mean, we've all been there, right? I mean, you're shopping for necessities. You get up to the counter. You see a nice Rolex display. Sure. At Marshall's by the... Re- and you're like, well, throw throw a couple of those on too, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm already spending $150. Why not $9,000 and $150? Exactly. What's another 9000 you know? Yeah. It's a... Uh, Jump change. Interesting. Yeah. I know. And my husband's like, you know, when we go to your restaurant, do you really need to get a sweet tea? Because you could drink water for free. <laughs> like, yeah, well, it's $2. I think we can swing it. But, you know, mm-hmm. but $2 times the 10,000 times I've said that is $20,000. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So, yeah, they're buying all this stuff. And later, Eric says that they're in immense pain during this time. And, you know, they have this money coming in. And so they're basically like trying to fill this void. And he does say that like Lyle and Kitty's thing was to go shopping all the time. And if you look at the charges, Lyle spent a considerable amount more than Eric did. Um, I mean, he bought a restaurant. Right. You know, that's a big purchase, I would say. Pretty big. But... I don't know. He's just like, that was their thing. And like, you know, retail therapy, you know, that's just kind of how they like coped with stuff. And I don't know. So, but a lot of people are like, well, if you, 
if you were really grieving the loss of your parents, right, you wouldn't go shopping. Right. I mean, uh, I don't know. I think that that's one of those things, like we've said before, with all kinds of other things where it's like, we can't really say what the normal person would do. It doesn't look good. That's completely fair. Doesn't look Mm -hmm. great. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I don't know. I don't know. And they they did do this. Right. I'm not, you know, in any way saying they didn't do it. But I do think that like after somebody has died, the way that you treat the life insurance money is a little different than like a Casey Anthony situation where she's going out partying every night and we have photos of this and she's entering these like what wet t-shirt contests and shit like oh that. But during that time, Kaylee is still missing and she's purporting herself to be doing her own investigation, finding her missing daughter. But in all actuality, she's just partying. Well, yeah, I'm pretty sure you're not going to find her at a bar. Right. Exactly. So it's like, I feel like that is when abnormal behavior comes in. Like Mm -hmm. that's when you can say, okay, somebody whose child is actively missing and you haven't located her in 15, 20, 31 days, you're not just going to go party at the bar every night. Like you're going to be diligent and looking for her. You're going to be sitting by the phone. You're going to be, you know, like you're going to be pounding the pavement, like asking questions and talking to everybody, you know, you would have called the police as well, but that's here, neither here nor there. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's like, I feel like that is so much different than like, that's where we can look at things and be like, you're not actually looking for her, which would lend itself to you either know where she is or, you know, she's not coming back. Mm -hmm. But what people do with life insurance money, I mean, you just never know. Well, and we'll get into it a little bit more, but what we do know, if you know anything about the case or if you've heard anything about it before, Jose, the father, was incredibly controlling. Mm-hmm. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So this could have been one of those things where they were like, wow, we have complete freedom for the first time. So let's just go buy a bunch of shit we always wanted to buy. Mm-hmm. Again, I can understand the argument can be made like doesn't look great because your parents have just been brutally shot to death and you're just going on a shopping spree. But that also being said, I know that I myself have been like, man, I don't really feel, you know, like something's going on in my life. And I'm like, I'm just going to go buy clothes like that'll make me feel better. Right. And it it really never does. But I can see both sides of it. I get it. But at the same time, I, I think that there are reasons like you can not explain it away, but you can you can see maybe why someone would do something like this. There are reasons. It's not, Mm -hmm. doesn't forgive the behavior, but. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's akin to, it could be akin to, you know, somebody drinking heavily after something big happens or, you know, to numb it or something. Absolutely. And, you know, in everybody's defense that speculated this, you know, they did do this. So if they're, you know, if they're looking at it as suspicious because they're like, well, you wouldn't spend the money on stuff like that if you were actually grieving. You must be guilty. Like, they did end up being guilty. I just don't. There's so much more to the story than the life insurance money. Right, absolutely. You know, and that kind of became 
the narrative when they got arrested was these are spoiled rich boys, which they were in a lot of ways, but these are spoiled rich boys that killed their parents because they were going to get cut off from their will and they wanted to get the life insurance money and they wanted it now and they didn't want to wait. Hmm. Yeah. I don't want to wait. Oh. Mm-hmm. I was going to keep going, but I won't. Okay. People like your singing. I don't, I don't, don't. get it. You but. do get it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So they go shopping and they're doing all kinds of shit. They're traveling to international tennis conferences and shit or competitions or whatever. They end up being arrested in March of 1990. Lyle is arrested first and then Eric is arrested. And they don't go on trial until 1993. So it's three years later that their first trial happens. Mm -hmm. Now. And this trial, the first one, lasts from July to January. Yeah. So that's pretty long trial. The second one's just as long. I mean, it's, Mm -hmm. they're very long. But. In the first trial, we have 51 witnesses testify about the abuse that the Menendez brothers suffered at the hands of their father. And this was sexual abuse, Mm -hmm. physical abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse. Mm -hmm. There were people who said that Jose demanded perfection and that like basically the reason Jose had kids was to create better versions of himself basically like he wanted them to be like he almost treated his sons as like his prized thoroughbreds or whatever Mm -hmm. they were for winning competitions they were for you know looks or whatever Mm -hmm. and he was so much so that when because they're sport of choice was tennis. And I mean, he was asked to leave games and like practices because he would speak over the coach and try to take Mm -hmm. it into his own hands. And it's like, dude, you're not the coach, but he didn't care. I mean, he's just like, I know better and I'm going to push them to the brink, you know? Yeah. And he was so hard on them. Like they were like, Hey, that's, you know, that's pushing the line or whatever. And he's just like, okay, well you're fired. Like that's Mm -hmm. it. Then you question me, you're fired. Like, Jose was a man that I don't think one person liked. Mm-mm. Well, when he, when one of his employees or coworkers was, was notified that he had passed away, he was like, huh, not surprised. Mm-hmm. And he was like, and I'm not sad. Nope. <laughs> like, I don't have to deal with him anymore. Fine. Yeah. It reminds me so much of the, I know it's a case, but the movie Bernie. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. the old lady that was murdered at the hands of Bernie was everybody was they had to move the trial to a different (laughs) location because everybody was like, don't blame him. Yeah. Let him go. Exactly. Or that I can't remember the guy's name. It was like, I don't remember. But there's like a documentary about it, like the town, something about the town that won't speak up or I don't know. But it was like somebody shot and killed this guy and he was like the town bully basically and no but like people in the town know who it was but they won't give that person up because they all are like well he did us a favor and we don't want him to go to jail for it so like we'll never tell yeah yeah but like um I think there's this culture of we need to respect victims and all those things. And and we should. And while nobody deserves to be brutally murdered ever. Right. If this had been a case where I feel like maybe, you know, a woman had killed her now and at this time, probably not still, but a woman had, you know, killed her husband that had been battering her, beating her, raping her, or a father, you know, who had done this to a girl, like you would almost be like, 
well, he deserved it kind of thing. Or like, you know, I can see how that would happen sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And I'm not, I'm not saying that that's what I think. I'm just saying that like, you know, there are, I could see how people would say that. I think people, you know, people have said that in other situations. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm thinking Lorena Bobbitt. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's why I thought, you know, maybe during this time, the early nineties, they, you know, if it was a woman, they still may not have been believed, but you know, I think it still would have helped, but you know, it reminds me a lot of the gypsy Blanchard Mm -hmm. case, Blanchard, whatever, you know, she was basically held hostage by her mom. Now this is not the way to get out of it, but at the same time, she didn't believe she had another way to get out of it. And I think that that's probably how the brothers felt too, because the Jose Menendez had Probably the police in his pocket. He had everybody in his pocket. He was a very wealthy and very powerful man in Beverly Hills. Yeah. And they were even, you know, they had a psychologist that they went to see. But this is somebody that their father hired. Mm -hmm. So what's to stop this person? You know, ethically, he shouldn't share anything that they say in a session with him. But I think that was a test for Jose because he's like, let's see if they're going to tell our secrets. Mm hmm. You know, and they knew better than to say anything. But this had been going on for a very, very long time. And when everybody around you, you know, the grownups in the room who are supposed to be protecting you are abusing you, I think you start to lose sight of how do I get out of this? Right what other options do I have kind of thing. Right. And that goes even beyond medical professionals or police officers or whoever in that town. Kitty, the mom, Mm -hmm. obviously knew about all of this. And she essentially, and this is not victim blaming, but she didn't do anything to protect them. She didn't do anything to to stop it. She just let Jose do what he was doing. Yeah. And I think, I think for Kitty... The impression that I got was that she was very broken down by Jose, too, and kind of just let him do whatever he wanted. She wanted she wanted him to be happy and have whatever he wanted. I mean, he was having ongoing affairs. He was using the services of sex workers on a very regular basis through some kind of like escort service in Beverly Hills. like. He was not in any way, shape, or form faithful to anybody, even his, you know, mistress. He was cheating on her. And then even on, you know, in addition to that one, he's using sex workers. Like, he's got a problem. Mm -hmm. And she did not want to divorce him because she didn't want, I think partially she probably didn't want to give up her lifestyle. Yeah. But... She really wanted to make this marriage work. And her brother said that, you know, she told him, that she was very upset about him cheating and it really hurt her. And that she said the thing that bothered her most was that she had lost her hero. I mean, she put Jose on a pedestal. 100%. And when they investigated or looked in the house, they found a cabinet full of medications, prescription medications that Kitty was on. So Mm -hmm. that probably numbed a lot of that for her. And if you're mixing different medications, she probably wasn't in her right mind at different points of the day. Yeah, yeah. And at one point, she overdosed on Valium Mm -hmm. and uh, had to be rushed to the hospital. So there's, you know, a lot of dysfunction in this family. Mm -hmm. Like, so much dysfunction. And the family members and, you know, friends and, you know, whoever, 51 witnesses got up on the stand and said things like, when we went to visit their house, Jose, even in their teens, you know, would take the boys to shower. He showered with them or gave them their shower. There is no reason for a father to be bathing his teenage sons. Mm -mm. They should be able to handle that on their own. I mean, I would think, you know, once, I mean, Ben's five and I get him into the shower and get him out, but he can handle what's going on in there himself. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I make sure that like he did soap up everything, but you know, 
I'm assuming by six or seven, he'll be able to handle that on his own. Like there's no reason that he needs to be doing that. And he would always go in with them. And the cousins and everything were like, when Jose was in a room with either of the boys alone, it was understood that you did not even go on the same floor as that room, no matter what you heard. Mm. That's disturbing. 100%. I mean, I think it's it's disturbing all the way around, but once you get to the no matter what you heard, yeah, I can't imagine the sounds that were coming from that house in those moments. Like, that's... That's horrific. Mm-hmm. Well, and that also says that Kitty did know because a lot of them said that if they did try to, like, you know, go upstairs or downstairs or wherever it is that, you know, they were going to go get something or play or whatever they were going to do, she would stop them and be like, no, you're not going to go there right now. Mm-hmm. Like, she made sure that they didn't go anywhere. I mean, could she have not been sure of what was going on because she didn't actually see it with her own eyes? Maybe. But there's no way that you don't know something like that is happening, especially when they say stuff like no matter what you heard, you're hearing something. As a mother, I don't know how you don't step in. Mm -hmm. And the only thing that I can think of is that she's been completely broken by this man. Yes, absolutely. And just has lost the will or drive to stand up to him anymore. Mm-hmm. Which is very sad. Incredibly sad. Yeah. And he was also abusive in the sense that, like, he would push them so hard in their academics and in their athletics that like there was one person who said that he was like swimming with one or both of them. I can't remember. And he was holding them under the water to, I don't know why, to try to get them to work on how long they could hold their breath. Or I don't know what the point of that was, but he was holding them underwater so long that this person thought he's, he's drowning them. This child is going to die. He can't stay under this long. And then at the very last second, right when, I think Eric said, right when they would pass out, he would let them up. Mm-hmm. Or right when they're about to pass out, he'd let them up. That's terrifying. Yeah, that's torturing them. Yeah, that should never, ever, ever happen. No. And other people saw it. It does bother me that so many people saw this and nobody ever reported it. Mm-hmm. But again, it's that we don't want to step on any toes. We don't want to, you know, make a big deal out of nothing. What if I'm wrong? Like, this can't really be happening because they're, you know, rich. They're affluent. This kind of thing can't be happening in Beverly Hills. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know. Because the cousins, you know, it's not their responsibility to tell adults what's happening. I mean, and I know that, like, The one cousin, Andy, he testified in the first trial that Eric had asked him if it was normal for his dad to be touching him the way that he was. And Andy was like, no. He had asked, does this happen to every kid? Mm -hmm. And he's like, no, that does not happen to every kid. And Eric said, promise me you're never going to tell anybody this. Like, I don't want to make him mad. I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want him to hurt me more. Like, just don't say anything. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Andy probably was like, you know, I don't want to get him in more trouble and, you know, all this stuff. So he kept it to himself. But there were enough adults that saw enough abusive behavior that it seemed like something could have been reported and looked into at the very least. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And they they even would use the bathroom like pee and poop in Tupperwares by their bed. Like, because they didn't want like to draw their dad's attention to come in their room and they didn't want to make him mad. And they would like Kitty would lock them. I think they said Kitty would lock them in the closet for mm-hmm. sometimes more than a day. Yes. As punishment. As punishment. I mean, she definitely was complicit 
at least in allowing Jose's sexual abuse to happen. And she took part in some of the physical and emotional abuse mm-hmm. at the very least. And they were spoiled in the sense that they were super rich. You know, they basically didn't, they didn't have to want for anything in the sense that like, you know, they had a lot of stuff. They had money. They had, you know, these really expensive tennis lessons. They had, you know, expensive clothes and expensive cars and like whatever. But a big part of that was Jose just trying to elevate his status through the boys. If Mm -hmm. the boys were going to be in public, they were going to have the best of everything. They were going to look the part of a successful, you know, American dream kind of family. Right. But in private, that's not how things were. Mm -mm, Not at all. You don't lock a spoiled, rotten kid in the closet for a day. Like, that doesn't go together. If the kid is totally spoiled, rotten, and runs the house and all this stuff, you know, obviously they're not going to want to be in there, so you're going to let them run wild, do whatever they want. Like, that's not what's happening. Mm -mm. It's just sad. It is. It's really sad. And I think at this time, whenever everything was happening, or this time in the world, right, in the 90s, early 90s, people were less likely to believe that boys could be sexually abused, especially by their fathers. Mm -hmm. And so they kind of dismissed it and wrote it off as like, oh, they're lying. They're making this up against their dad. And there's enough people, family members, close people that saw enough to corroborate that story and for them to have been believed. But Mm -hmm. they just were, and and they kind of laughed it off. They did, yeah. I mean, SNL started doing skits about it. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's awful. And the prosecutor, Pam Bazanich, said in the first trial, she used the words that, the men lacked the necessary equipment to be raped. <laughs> I don't understand what that means. Like, how so? Well, it's it's ignorant and it's dismissive. That's what it is. It's like, that's completely false. Mm-hmm. And what it's doing is it's telling a victim, you're wrong, nobody's going to believe you, you're lying. Mm-hmm. And that's terrible. Yeah, and we wonder why people don't come forward when they are sexually abused. Right, because it's apparently instinct for a lot of people to be like, untrue, next. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and one of the jurors in the case, or alternate jurors, was like, you know, sexual abuse happens behind closed doors, right? There's not witnesses to it. It's very hard to prove. Like, it's not something that happens out in public, right? Mm Mm-hmm. But there are signs out in public. These are kids. So they're asking a lot of questions because they don't know if this is normal. They don't know if this is how everybody else's family operates because it's all they've ever known. But they have something inside them that says, this is not right. I don't like this. Right. So the actual abuse itself did take place, you know, in a bedroom or in the shower or whatever, and the doors are closed. But again, you have all those other people who say he would be taking a shower with them when they were much too old for that. I thought that was weird. He would always go in and close the door and lock it and they'd be in there for an hour or so and nobody was allowed on the same floor. Mm -hmm. They're asking, does your father touch you down there? Because mine does. Is that normal? Like, there's all that stuff. So I think when they got on the stand, and now Pam Bazanich, the prosecutor, She said when they were preparing for the first trial, one of her colleagues or whatever was like, well, I think they're going to fabricate a sexual abuse defense. And she's like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense because otherwise I don't know why we're going to trial because they obviously did it. You know, it was never a question of who did it. And she's like, the only thing we could think of is that they were going to make up a sexual abuse defense. And that's exactly what they did. And when it became known that that was, you know, the defense that they were going to take, pretty much everybody was like, crock of shit. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, they're making it up. 
And then they got on the stand. And all these other people got on the stand and corroborated these stories. But they got on the stand and one of the jurors said their really bad performance in the 911 call actually helps them because you hear that and you know that they're faking it. And then you see how they are on the stand and you know that they're not. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of tell when they're acting and they're crying and when they're not. But one of the things that, you know, Pam did, and I mean, I guess this is what you have to do, but she's got Lyle on the stand. She plays the 911 call and she says, you were crying during this call. He's like, yeah. She's like, and at the same time you were crying, you were lying. Yeah. You knew that you had killed your parents, but you told the police you hadn't. Right. You knew that you had done it, but you didn't tell them that. And you told them you found them and you're telling them the story, but you're crying while you're doing it. Yeah. Well, you're crying now. So how do I know that you're not lying now? Like, you got to sew that like, well, he lied one time, Mm -hmm. so you can't trust anything he says kind of thing. And especially she had to pick apart that raw emotion and she had to get past it because it was very believable and it was very emotional and moving and raw. And I mean, they admitted to things and they talked about things that people were like, it's not just something you'd hear in a story like this. And you'd be like, oh, I should include something like this or whatever in my story. It was things like textbook things in a sexual abuse case of of a child where Lyle was the first to be sexually abused. And so he would take Eric out into the woods and his dad had used items on him, toothbrushes and other things. He would bring a toothbrush out into the woods with him. And he said, I would play with Eric like my dad played with me. Mm -hmm. And they are an absolute emotional wreck while he's talking about this, you can see how ashamed Lyle is. Like you wouldn't be saying, I I just don't think you would be saying something like that if it didn't happen. I mean, it's. Well, absolutely. And one of the, one of the things that happens often in sexual abuse cases when a child is very young, when they're being sexually abused is they turn around and do that to someone else. Mm Mm-hmm. Because they think it's normal. And that maybe, you know, I don't know why, but it happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, the weird thing is they didn't like it. It hurt, you know, first of all. They didn't like it. They were uncomfortable with it. They knew that something about it was fundamentally wrong. But at the same time, they also were, in a way, like, honored when their father wanted to spend one-on-one time with them. Mm-hmm. Because this is how he showed them love. He never showed them affection or love any other time. This is the only way that they got his affection. Mm -hmm. And they craved it. So in their minds, this is how you show love. Mm -hmm. I mean. So sad. It is. It's really sad. Okay. So the first trial ends in a hung jury. And they were tried separately in the first trial. And they were represented by two different lawyers. And the jury just couldn't come to a conclusion, you know, because they they each had a jury. So it was like, you know, one of them is only looking at Eric's actions. One of them is only looking at Lyle's actions. And they can't decide. So it's a hung jury. So there is outrage now. Everybody is pissed because. They should have been convicted. Like, how could you not convict them and all this stuff? But, you know, that sexual abuse stuff was very powerful. And I think a lot of people, it made them stop and be like, maybe that did happen. Mm -hmm. Like, maybe that's true. So they take them to trial again, of course. And this time they're tried together. But the biggest change for this trial is the judge said, All that shit about the sexual abuse before, I'm not letting that in. That is unfathomable. I don't understand that. None of it can come in. Not one bit of it. That is 
the case, though. That's yeah. the whole thing. Yeah, that's their entire mitigating factor. So if they if they don't let that in, then that seals the coffin. That's it. The nail in the coffin right there. That's it. Absolutely. You took testimony that 51 witnesses shared and you you threw it out. It's almost as if the judge was like, I'll be damned if we have another hung jury. So let's just make it a slam dunk case. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah, because it's not it's not like there was just one person who came on and gave this like bombshell testimony that like you don't know if it's true or not, you know, and they're like Mm -hmm. basically like how Casey Anthony got up there and was like, you know, George had been molesting her. Yeah, Yeah. Mm -hmm. like that's not what happened. We had so many people corroborate the same situations. Mm -hmm. Why would you throw all of it out? Because they just wanted to win. Exactly. They had to win. This is during the time that OJ was on trial, when he was acquitted. They were not, you know, it's a political thing. They're not, the DA's office is looking stupid, basically. Mm -hmm. They they haven't gotten a win. Yeah. So they need a big win right now. They can't get mud on their face, basically. Mm -hmm. It's too embarrassing. Yep. So they are convicted on March 20th, 1996, and its first degree murder was special circumstances and conspiracy to commit murder. Mm-hmm. Now, another thing that came out, I believe during this trial, was that Eric had been writing some screenplays with his friend. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to do murder mysteries. And one of the screenplays that he wrote was a story about a kid who needed money and killed his parents for the life insurance money. That was the the reason. And the friend said over time, as it got closer and closer to the actual murder, he changed some of the details in the screenplay to essentially reflect exactly what had happened at the crime scene. Hmm. So Pam Bazanich jumps on that and says, well, this is obviously premeditated. He planned this. He kind of gave it a test run with his writing and had other people look at it and give their opinion. You know, is this believable? Is it not believable? Whatever. And, you know, it shows that they were definitely planning to do this for, for at least months before. Do you think that they were planning it months before? I don't think so. Okay, so what Lyle and Eric say is during this time, the week leading up to the murder, Lyle is home from college. Eric is getting ready to go to college. He just graduated high school and he's supposed to go to college and he was under the impression that he's going to live at the dorm. And he's very excited about this because his dad is not going to be coming in his room every night, right? Mm -hmm. He gets away from this. Well, his dad had told him that day, like, what are you doing? Why are you packing? And he's like, well, I got to get, you know, I'm moving to the dorm. And he's like, no, you'll be living here. You'll commute. And he was like crestfallen. Like, Mm -hmm. okay, I thought I had my way out. I don't have it anymore. And his dad controls every bit of money that he has. So it's not like he can just go rent his own apartment or whatever. He's stuck, basically. And then... Kitty and Lyle get into a big fight and and Kitty would lash out pretty hard in these fights. And at this point, she like is striking Lyle and she pulls his toupee off and Eric is standing there and sees this happen. And Eric at that point did not know that Lyle had a toupee. And so the two boys go outside and they talk after this has happened And they agree that, okay, there's too many secrets in this family. Like, nobody really knows the real story, right? Like, we all have all these things that we're keeping inside. And so they decided that they weren't going to have secrets from each other. And so that's when Eric told Lyle, and Lyle had never told him about his abuse, but that's when Eric told Lyle that his dad was molesting him. And Lyle was under the impression, I guess, that because his dad had abused him, that he wouldn't do it to Eric. Mm -hmm. And then he finds out that he's doing it to Eric, and he's very upset about that. 
And Jose finds out that Eric has told Lyle. So Jose says, you're going to go tell everybody and I'm not going to let that happen. This cannot happen. And at some point they have a confrontation with Kitty and he tells her, Eric says, you know, this is what dad's been doing to me. And she's like, what do you think? I'm stupid. Do you think I don't know about this? (laughs) I've always known. Yeah, I've always known. And he's like, what? You knew, like, I can't, like, I cannot believe this. I did not know. And the way that she says it, too, just very, like, uh, duh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, of course I know. What, am I an idiot? Like, I don't know. And her, her brother, like, they talked to him in one of the documentaries, and he is the only person who knew Jose and Kitty and the family that says the abuse could never have happened. I never saw them be anything other than kind, loving, upstanding parents. And the boys were the ones who were just totally out of control and they got whatever they wanted. And toward the end, Kitty was questioning whether she'd made the right decision by just letting them run their whole lives because now they're not doing well in school and they're getting into criminal activity and, you know, they're going down a bad road and maybe I shouldn't have just let them have whatever they want whenever they want it. Mm-hmm. But he's the only person that says that. Right. So how credible can he be? I think that when something like this, ha- and I can't even imagine what it would be like to have something like this happen in, in my family, but trying to put myself in his shoes, I could see him needing to come to terms with it in some way So Mm -hmm. just making the boys out to be monsters. And again, I don't condone anything that they did. I do not agree with killing anyone, killing your parents, killing anybody. Mm -mm. But it seems like he's the only one who is not telling the truth or not seeing it the way that it was. Yeah, yeah. And how is how can one person that never lived in the house with them didn't experience any of this? How can one person say that could have never happened? You don't know. From what I understand, I'm not positive about this, but I don't even think they lived in the same state. Like, they didn't see each other very often. And I highly doubt Kitty was talking to him on the phone every day. Like, well, and you, okay, so to your point with what you just said, yeah, they probably weren't talking every day. You know that it's, I would guess that Kitty or Jose were the ones that were talking to him. Lyle Mm -hmm. and Eric probably weren't. And there wasn't a safe space to talk about it freely anyway. Exactly. Yeah, because... When he is seeing the boys, he's seeing them with their parents. Mm -hmm. I mean, anytime you're going to talk to a child about possible abuse of any type, you have to separate them from their parents because they're not going to say that shit in front of them. Well, yeah. I mean, Jose would have never allowed for them to, like, I I know that they knew when Jose was around, you got to act right, like straighten Mm -hmm. up, act right. Exactly. And a lot of times, you know, kids will deny abuse for a while, even if their parents aren't in the room because they don't want to get their parents in trouble or they don't Mm want to get it worse. Mm -hmm. What if they find out, you know, that I've said something and then they don't go to jail or whatever. And then I get it worse after that. I'm going to get beaten. And I mean, look at the hearts. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. So I believe a lot of that that situation leading up to it. And like Eric said that it was after that confrontation with Jose that they went and bought guns because they thought they thought that Jose was going to do whatever it took to keep that secret in the family. Yeah, I'm sure that the thought going through their mind was kill or be killed, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Leslie Abramson, um, Eric's attorney, says in a press conference at some point during the trial, we're not saying that if a child is sexually abused that they should get away with killing their parents. We're not saying that, you know, you should kill your parents if they abuse you. She's like, what we're saying is that sexual and physical and emotional abuse by your parents creates a terrible fear. And now you don't know who you can trust. And now you don't know how you can get out of it. And now you don't know that you're ever going to get out of it. And 
you don't feel safe. And, you know, it's like all these things. Well, yeah. And I'm sure Lyle, especially, and Eric too, they're thinking, okay, if we can just make it through college, we'll be out Mm -hmm. of here. Mm -hmm. And then they found out very, very quickly that that was not the case. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because they, they're going to control every aspect of their life. I mean, I guess they could have you know, been like, okay, fine. Well, I'll just be cut off, like pull a Rachel Green, mm-hmm. a Rachel Greep and go live in, you know, New York with a roommate and get her own job and work as a waitress and stuff like that. They, you know, I'm not saying they didn't have any options at all, but to them, they didn't see a way out that option. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They didn't see a way out. And they believed, I think at this point, they believed that they would be physically harmed. And there are people who say, you know, well, these boys are are obviously killers. Like they killed their parents and that's just like, you know, it's unnatural. It goes against like the very, you know, foundations of society and like all these things. And it's the wor- one of the worst things that you can do. And, you know, it just shows that they're willing to do whatever it takes. Like the ends justify the means kind of thing. Like, they just need to get to whatever outcome they want and they don't care how they get there. Well, they learned that from Lyle. I mean, from uh, Jose, if that is how they feel about stuff. But Jose was definitely not a person who took the ethical or moral high road mm-hmm. in any situation. No. He was going to do whatever he needed to do to get what he wanted. Right, absolutely. And that's just the end of it. Like. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if he hurts your feelings. It doesn't matter if you're physically injured because of it. Like, it d- doesn't matter. Like, he want, he is looking out for number one. Mm-hmm. But I think also it was hard to reconcile the abuse. And the prosecutors brought this up, too, because they were rich. And so they're like... Well, but they weren't being abused because they bought them stuff. (laughs) So, like, if they were really being abused, wouldn't they be, like, living, you know, under a rock in the backyard? Like, did they not have beds? Did they not have food? That is so dismissive. It's not even funny. That's so ridiculous because that's part of grooming. That's part of the manipulation. That's part of gaslighting. That's also part of narcissistic personalities where they're like, well, but I could be doing this. Uh-huh. It could be this bad. At least you have all of these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, like you have to, you have to understand who Jose and Kitty are to understand all of these pieces. So you've got somebody who's obsessed with the veneer of success in his life. And he's going to do whatever he can to make himself look as successful as possible, as possible, which includes sending his kids to high school in a limousine because that shows the status of Jose. Mm-hmm. Jose is so rich that he can send his children to school in a limo. Kitty and Jose did the boys' homework for them because they wanted it to look perfect. And then they would go and take a test and they would fail it because they didn't know what they were doing because they didn't actually do their own damn homework. Mm -hmm. Like all of that was just to make Jose look like he had these amazing kids and that they had this amazing life, you know, all these things. So like you can still be abusing somebody who you're also providing stretch limo rides to. Right. I mean, it's... Well, and that's the mentality of like, hey, look over there. So you don't notice anything else. Yeah. Yeah, that couldn't possibly be happening. Like, look at all this other stuff they have. And, you know, they're involved in sports and all these things. Like, you know, they have expensive clothes. They have expensive cars. Well, those are also the things that made them feel like they had to stay because they didn't think that they could afford anything else, you know, Mm -hmm. on their own. So, well, I have to do what dad says because otherwise I don't have transportation. I don't have this or that, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, I'm just very surprised that even today the prosecutor is still like 
I think they did it. I think they planned it out months in advance and they did it just for the insurance money. And they're just two spoiled, rotten, rich kids that killed their parents because they're cold hearted killers. Yeah. I mean, you have to not look at over half of the case to agree with that or to just feel that way. Do I think that they were spoiled? Yeah, in some ways, because that's the life that Jose and Kitty provided for them. They didn't know any better. But the abuse was real as far as I'm concerned. And I do disagree with not letting that in the second trial. I don't understand how that was even possible. But again, do I condone murdering your parents? Absolutely not. But again, it's one of those things where it's like, I'm not justifying it in any way, but do I see how they thought, because they were so young, Yeah, their brains aren't developed all the way yet. Their reasoning and their logic and what could happen if we do this, that wasn't there yet. So they were in fight or flight and they thought, what can we do to get out of this right now? Mm-hmm. And that's what I believe. Well, yeah. And they, the prosecutor even says at one point, you know, she talks about how everybody referred to them as the boys through the trial and why Leslie Abramson and I don't remember the other lawyer's name, but they dress the boys the way they did with their pastel sweaters and their button down shirts under it and all this kind of stuff. And she's like, they're just trying to make them look, you know, like Easter egg candies, like these little innocent, you know, kids. And she's like, everybody referred to them as the boys because it was easier to say that than to say, you know, their full names or these douchebags over here that killed their parents or whatever, how she worded it. But she's like, you know, everybody started using the term the boys, the boys, the boys, like you heard it everywhere. And she was like, but they didn't refer to them as, you know, the adults, the men. And she's like, and they were adults. They were over 18. And it's like, uh uh-huh, they were over 18. But we know through lots of science, you know, it's all over the science (laughs) that the brain is not fully formed until the age of 25. Mm -hmm. And your prefrontal cortex is the last thing to develop. And it contributes to a wide variety of executive functions, including focusing one's attention, focusing one's attention. Apparently, it doesn't help reading. No, I don't think it does. No, it doesn't Mm -hmm. seem like it. Apparently, my reading, my reading brain part (laughs) hasn't come in yet. Yeah. Predicting the consequences of one's own actions, anticipating events in the environment. It helps with impulse control. It helps with managing emotional, emotional reactions. Like there's a lot of stuff that the prefrontal cortex is, is attributed to, right? Yeah. And a lot of it has to do with like, you know, maturity and decision-making and all these things. And if that's not developed yet, then you've got a teenage kid who's going to do some stupid shit, right? Mm-hmm. Like, why is it that rental car companies don't rent to somebody under 25? Exactly. That's not an arbitrary number. That's because of that. <laughs> like, exactly. The risk of causing a wreck goes down significantly after 25. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just how it is. And, you know, it's also shown that children who grow up in unstable homes have issues with prefrontal cortex function, specifically thinking through consequences and inhibiting impulses. So you're factoring this trauma in and then you also have to factor in like so you've got this very unstable environment that they've grown up with their entire life the people who they're supposed to be able to go to for protection are the very people that are hurting him them and then you've got the fact that their brains aren't fully developed so they're gonna come up with a plan that if they were thinking about it today they would be like well that's a dumb plan I obviously we can't do that like it's not gonna work out but in an 18 and 21 year old mind, it's we're invincible. This we got to do it. Yeah. Best plan we've ever had. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So do you think because they're still in jail, mm-hmm. do you think that they should still be in jail? I don't. I honestly don't. I feel like even though they were over the age of 18, 
to me, they were still children. And, and I believe anybody who gets sentenced as an adult, if they're under 25, there needs to be some special steps taken there or something like that. I don't know what the answer is, but I don't believe that a kid who's 22 years old, you know, the circumstances are not the same as a 51 year old who kills somebody. Like it's just not. Mm-hmm. So I think that they were still, you know, in brain development, they were still children and younger offenders have a better chance of being rehabilitated. And you also have the extreme abuse they suffered. Right. Absolutely. And I would guess that they have not been able to have much counseling or as much as they need to Mm -hmm. work through a lot of this stuff. So I don't think that our prison system here does much to rehabilitate or even try to rehabilitate. No. I mean, yeah, our focus is punishment. Mm -hmm. And vindication like it's not it's not rehabilitation Mm -mm. but you've got two guys who killed their parents and absolutely should not have done that no matter what but they've gone on to spend what over 30 years in prison Mm -hmm. and they've both gone on to better themselves they're contributing members in their, you know, prison life. They're both married and have been married for quite some time. You know, I think I think I think 25 years without parole, you know, before you get a chance of parole would have been appropriate. Right. Yeah. I I agree. Yeah, and they're not going to get the chances of them getting a new trial like Earlier this year, maybe last year, their case kind of went viral on TikTok. Like a bunch of TikTok users started like hearing about the case because they're all like itty bitty babies and they didn't know about it yet. <laughs> but um, they started hearing about it. They started doing a bunch of TikTok videos and, you know, it was like all over the place. And, you know, people were like, hey, maybe they'll get a new trial. You know, like we're raising a lot of hell about it. Like, you know, maybe they'll get a new trial. And I read an article about it and it said they're probably not going to get a new trial because the way that, you know, things stand, like they've appealed and they've lost the appeals that they filed. But as things stand right now, the only way that they could get a new trial is if they brought new evidence that wasn't available at the time or that, you know, wasn't used at the time of the trial and would significantly change the outcome. But for me, what I don't understand is how come those 51 witnesses who corroborate the sexual abuse doesn't count as, quote, new evidence because it was it was not allowed in and it should have been. And every juror that they talked to said, if I had known about that, I would not have voted for murder. I would have gone a lesser charge. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Like their entire defense was kept out of the trial. So how come that's not like doesn't warrant a retrial at Mm -hmm. least? Yeah. I mean, they didn't get a fair shake in it from the second trial anyway. So no, they didn't. So, yeah. And I mean, I don't know. I don't know if we're going to piss some people off with, you know, that opinion. I know there are plenty of people who think that they're just pieces of shit and, you know, whatever. But I mean, that's just that's just how I feel. Yeah. I mean, I definitely agree. And yeah, I think I don't know what can be done going moving forward. But I do think that I don't know. I think we're in a general agreeance. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, you know, catch us on Instagram live on Thursdays at 11 central. You know, we can chat about it. Catch us on just Instagram. We'll have a post about this. You can contact us on, you know, Facebook, whatever. We'd love to hear what your thoughts are on the case. And as always, we love to brag on our amazing listeners because you guys are so cool. When we have conversations about cases, it's so grown up and just so like respectful of each other. It's like, you know, we can we can come to the table and say, this is what I think. And somebody else can say, well, what about this? Or this is what I read. And it's like, okay, well, you know, I didn't know about that or thank you. It's just like, 
They're just awesome. They don't yes. yell at each other. And no, it's always cordial. It's really respectful and yeah. it's just good conversation. So yeah, absolutely. We love that. Yes. We love you guys and we will catch you on the next episode. Bye. Bye. Okay, guys, before we head out for the week, you know what we got. Shout out, shout out, shout out. So, hey, girl, thanks to Amy, Megan, Elizabeth Dybolt, The Potting Shed, Kyra May, Amber Edwards, Katrina Bick, Sanj, Mackenzie, Aaron Roth, Ashley Kelly, Savannah Wilkinson, Rowena Cooper, Kristen Humphrey, Chelsea Miller, Marissa Starrett, Alexine Antone, Melissa Masco-Charles, Andrea Barfield, Laura Lee Greer, Jordan Hicks, Tisha Johnson, Anastasia Mapes, Andrea Jackson, Chelsea Hall, Amanda Whitehead, Kelly, Angel Bethel, Jillian Jones, Natalie Autumn, Aaron Lowry, Coral Butler, Kate Sandifer, Kayla Tidwell, Allison, Alicia Wynn, Lucia Ramos, Tabitha Rebo, Jessica Centers McElnay, Beth Knight, Lindsay Morphew, and Melissa. Oh my God, thank you guys. And if we mispronounce your name, always know that we still love you and uh, we are just really doing our best here. Yes, our deepest apologies. Thank you so much though. We love you. We love you. Bye. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this case. Connect with us on Instagram or Facebook to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening and we will meet you back here next week. Bye. The theme song for the show is created and composed by Stephen Toby. You can find more of Stephen's work on SoundCloud. Our logo was created by Sloan Williams of Sophisticated Crayon. You can find more of her work on Etsy. Visit us at killerqueenspodcast.com for merch and other info about the show. 